Good afternoon, church. So good to be with you today to sing his praises together, to remember him together in his death, burial, and resurrection, and now to dig into his word together. Together is how church is biblically defined. So let's dig in. I remember as a kid attempting to share my faith and getting stumped with a question. If God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? As a 9 or 10-year-old kid, I didn't know how to answer that. The question felt wrong somehow, but I didn't have the capacity to analyze the question itself accurately. I now understand that it's a false question. It presumes that God can be measured like us in terms of strength and such, but God is not like us. It is a misunderstanding of what it means to be made in God's image. God is a spirit, and so the question doesn't apply. It actually ends up acting like a mirror to reflect our own limitations in knowledge and understanding about God. But are there things that an all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere-present God can't do? For example, can he hate? What about Isaiah 61 verse 8? For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Or Amos 5.21, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Or Zechariah 8.17, do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So he is able to hate those things that are the opposite of him. Okay, can he be jealous? Well, we know there are several verses that speak of his jealous love. But you see, we struggle with these things because we only know them experientially through our corrupted nature. God doesn't have a corrupt nature. His hatred and his jealousy are not corrupted by sin, but are instead right and pure. But that clarifies one thing he can't do. God can't sin. Sin is rebellion and disobedience toward God. God can't rebel against himself or disobey himself. It's even more than that he doesn't really want to. It's that it would require him to go against his very nature, which is impossible. It's not a weakness of his. On the contrary, it validates that he is who he says he is. Think of it this way, and I've mentioned this before. A magnet is drawn to ferrous metals like steel, but a magnet won't stick, quote-unquotes, to gold, silver, and aluminum. There's nothing in those metals to which a magnet would be drawn. We sin because we have a sin nature. There is that within us that is drawn towards sin. However, as followers of Jesus, we are able to fight that draw because we are also given a new nature, his nature, which is not drawn to sin, but instead fights against it. Jesus did no sin because there was no sin nature in him since he had no earthly father and was instead conceived of the Holy Spirit. So, like a magnet with aluminum, there is nothing in him to be drawn to sin. It's not a weakness or limitation on his part. It's validation or affirmation of his sinlessness. It demonstrates that he is unlike us. Jesus is God in the flesh, and it is this very difference that makes him qualified to be the sacrifice for our sin. So today we come to a question that has caused many to be confused or deeply concerned. The question is this, is there a sin 
that God can't forgive? And is there a possibility that I might have committed it and it's too late for me? We're going to take a look at that today. But before we do, let me quickly recap. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Matthew 12 marks a significant shift in Jesus' earthly ministry. Up to now, he has been the king presented and attested, but from this point on, we will see clearly the king blasphemed and rejected and ultimately put to death on a cross. But Jesus doesn't back down. He is not afraid to confront and correct the religious elite who strive to peddle a counterfeit religion as God's word and expect to continue to do so unchallenged. But what we have to understand, what Jesus wants us to understand, is that this is so much more than a personality clash or, or a character conflict between him and the Pharisees. This is a kingdom clash, a battle between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is declaring war on the enemy of our souls, and the response of the religious leaders serves to expose their hearts and where their true allegiance lies. We saw in verses 9 to 14 how Jesus is confronted and challenged by the Pharisees about Sabbath laws. The Pharisees value their religious laws more highly than the freedom of their kinsmen from physical disability. No wonder Jesus quotes Hosea 6 verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, in his condemnation of them. The Pharisees are focused on the religious rites while he is focused on the people themselves. The religious leaders were supposed to shepherd the people of Israel, but they're like shepherds who are more concerned with what materials were used to construct the sheep pen or whether someone's shepherd staff conformed to regulation. In contrast, Jesus, the good shepherd, is fully concerned with the sheep and would lay down his life for them. Jesus displays his authority and by doing so challenges theirs. They cannot deny his ability to heal miraculously, but rather than humbly submit, verse 14 tells us that they went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. And today we will examine one of their tactics. But before we do so, let's just pray. Lord Jesus, as we delve into today's passage, we are reminded again of your ultimate authority over all things. And knowing this, it gives us comfort and reassurance. We are also reminded how gentle and loving you are and how infinitely great is the extent of your grace and righteousness. And we worship you. Speak through me as I strive to clearly and accurately explain today's message. May, it, may my words be your words. Amen. So let's read the passage, mindful of what the Pharisees are attempting to do but also reminded of Job's declaration in Job 42, verse 2, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to start reading at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. 
And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. So how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. We'll pause there just for now. So I want you to notice a few things in this passage. The first thing that we see is Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. Take a look again at verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Notice that the passage begins with the word then. This connects it with the first part of Matthew 12. So, after Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, challenging the Pharisees' authority, and then withdrew in verse 15, he's followed by a crowd. He heals them, and in verse 16, orders them not to make him known, after which Matthew includes the passage from Isaiah 42, which Germain preached on last week. But clearly the Pharisees have now caught up to him, and they are in the crowd when a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So first off, let me clarify that not all medical issues that we encounter are automatically attributable to demon possession. But the scripture makes it clear that this poor man was under terrible bondage. Not only was he unable to see and unable to speak, but he was possessed by a demon who was certainly torturing him spiritually. I thank God that I have no idea what that is like. From everything I've read or heard, it is absolutely horrific. The kingdom of darkness is real, and it is nothing to be trifled with. We as followers of Jesus have experienced freedom from bondage to sin. We have been brought from darkness to light. So we have no business toying with things like Ouija boards, seances, and tarot cards. And out of love for the lost, we should warn them against such things, even if they scorn us for it. Here, Jesus demonstrates that he is the servant spoken of in Isaiah 42. He is gentle with this bruised reed and compassionate towards this smoldering wick. For the first time in a long time, maybe the first time in his life, this man could see. And this man could speak. And the horror, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, of being indwelt by a demon was finally gone. But there's something else, something more. Jesus also demonstrates his unquestioned authority over the spiritual realm. Exorcisms were done by others besides Jesus, but they always used something incantations and spells, potions and herbs, rings and earrings as magical things to manipulate the spirit world. But Jesus? Jesus commands, and the demons instantly obey. He speaks with authority, and the demons immediately submit. 
This exorcism confirms once again that the kingdom of God is here and the king is exerting his authority. What was the response of the people? So here we come to the second thing, the people's acknowledgement. The people's acknowledgement. It says in verse 23 that the people were amazed. Now, should they be? Well, definitely. You and I certainly would. But there's more to it than that. You see, Jesus has already been demonstrating to the crowds of followers his authority over the physical realm multiple times, in fact. In verse 15, it states, Many followed him, and he healed them all. So in one sense, maybe you would expect them to not be quite so amazed since they'd already witnessed many healings. But this was different. Here, Jesus not only demonstrates his authority over the physical realm, but also over the spiritual realm. He did so before in the country of the Gerasenes, but that was only witnessed by his disciples. In this situation, it is known not just by him, but by all the onlookers, that this man was demon-possessed, and that was the reason for his disabilities. How do we know this? Well, we can tell from the response of the Pharisees in verse 24. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They did not disavow that a demon was cast out. In fact, they acknowledged that very fact. And we'll look at this shortly. But notice the acknowledgement of the crowd in verse 23. Can this be the son of David? The phrase son of David was a messianic title. They knew that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. It had been prophesied, and as we've said before, the Messiah was certainly anticipated by the nation of Israel. But they had their own image, their own understanding of what the Messiah would be. Just like David the king of old had liberated Israel from Philistine occupation and oppression, so too the Messiah, the greater David, would be a liberator who would set the people free to worship God without hindrance and bring them into the full enjoyment of the promised land without enemy Gentile oppressors. This is what they were expecting. What they weren't expecting was an exorcist. Now, as a side note, David is the only person on record in the Old Testament to have exorcised a demon. 1 Samuel 16 describes how King Saul would at times be set upon by an evil spirit. David would be brought in to play the harp, and as it states in verse 23 of that chapter, the harmful spirit departed from him. So the people questioned whether Jesus was the Messiah because he didn't fit their mold of what they envisioned the Messiah to be. What about you and me today? Are we any different? If you're exploring the Christian faith, do you struggle to accept Jesus the way he's portrayed in the Bible because you have preconceived notions of what you believe Jesus ought to be? And what about you, follower of Jesus? You and I have to be careful not to shape our image of Jesus into a God of our own making to superimpose our expectations onto him, placing limitations on what he would say or do. Instead, we need to diligently study the scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit the freedom to communicate Jesus to us exactly as he's revealed in God's word. All right, so we've looked at Jesus' authority, 
at the people's acknowledgement, and now we have the Pharisees' accusation. The Pharisees' accusation. The Pharisees hear the people commenting and questioning whether Jesus could be the promised son of David, and as it's stated in verse 14, their goal is to destroy Jesus. That Jesus exercised a demon is clear. His power is impossible to deny, so they do the only thing they can. They contaminate the source of his power in the minds of those watching. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons, they scornfully declare. They aren't simply hoping to dissuade the crowd from following Jesus and acknowledging him as the Messiah. This accusation was a serious charge, one of practicing magic under the influence of Satan, and it was punishable by death. So the irony here is that they accuse Jesus, who is innocent and righteous, of a capital offense, while they themselves commit blasphemy and attempted murder by trying to see if they could get him stoned for practicing sorcery. They will stop at nothing because they cannot accept that this man, who has denounced them as hypocrites and trampled on their system of human traditions, that this man could be the prophesied and long-awaited Messiah. And so Jesus responds with bold confidence we get Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer. Jesus demonstrates his authority over the spirit world, and he does it again when he answers the religious leaders. He starts with his defense in verses 25 to 29, and then moves to his offense in verses 30 to 37. So first is defense. And I've, I've broken this down into three parts. The accusation was ridiculous. Verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? To say that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan was to say that Satan was working against the expansion of his own kingdom of darkness. And any kingdom that works that way will not stand. The accusation doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Number two, the accusation was prejudiced we see that in verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? The word sons actually refers to followers or disciples. The historian Josephus records that there were those of the Jewish religious leaders who practiced exorcism by incantations and such. Even Acts 19 records the account of the seven sons of Siva, who were themselves exorcists, and upon hearing the success of the apostles, decided that they would try this new approach and cast out demons by stating, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. That was what they used as their so-called power. But the demon responds with, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Whereupon they receive a severe thrashing and manage to escape wounded and naked. Jesus reveals the prejudice of the Pharisees by pointing out that they approved of the exorcisms done by the followers of their own religious traditions, but when Jesus comes, healing every disease and casting out demons, they accuse him of being in league with Satan. And lastly, the accusation was rebellious, verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Jesus had shown that the charge of working by the power of Satan was baseless. And now the only logical conclusion was that the power he demonstrated to heal and to cast out demons came from God. And if this were true, then they were intentionally standing against God's Messiah, refusing to believe the signs that he was clearly displaying and revealing the rebellion in their own hearts. Jesus then goes on the offense. In verse 30, he states, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There is no middle ground here. Either Jesus is the Messiah, or he isn't. And then that would make him a liar. And then he makes this statement, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of which Jesus speaks? And is it something that we could possibly do, either inadvertently or intentionally? Some have made the claim that certain sins like suicide are unforgivable, but in Romans 8, 38, and 39, Paul states emphatically, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We may feel unforgivable, but Scripture gives us some pretty clear indicators of the radical extent of God's forgiveness and grace made possible because of the efficacy or effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice. And there is nothing in this passage to indicate that's the context. So it can't be that. Some would argue that it's a willful and consistent refusal to listen to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit and turn to Jesus. Well, it's true that if you continually reject Jesus, you will die in your sins, but that's still not a sin that you've committed that is unpardonable. And some have, for years, resisted the call of the gospel and then come to Christ long years later. They're forgiven and redeemed. So that doesn't fit either. Brothers and sisters, we are saved because of what the Father thinks of the Son. We didn't earn our salvation in the first place. And we don't maintain our salvation either. In 1 Peter 1 verse 5, Peter writes to those who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So it is impossible that we who are saved by the Son and maintained by God's power are going to be able to commit an unpardonable sin. The only time this particular sin is mentioned is in the context of Jesus demonstrating his credentials and the Pharisees attributing it to the power of Satan. This is before the crucifixion of Jesus has occurred. Jesus uses the word, therefore, to connect what he says next to what has just occurred. The audience to which Jesus is speaking is an audience of unbelievers. They are angry, insulting, hypocritical unbelievers. They were people of Jesus' hometown. They had watched him grow up for 30 years, heal many, and now cast out demons. And Mark 3 indicates that they thought he was a lunatic. The scribes and Pharisees accused him of casting out demons by the prince of demons, and the townspeople who knew Jesus said nothing on his behalf. 
They participated in the slander of the Son of God and absolutely refused the Holy Spirit that motivated Jesus. This is what Jesus is referring to. So this sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a sin that does not exist any longer. Finally, Jesus states that a tree is known by its fruit. You can't mistake a tree when it bears its fruit. I was walking in our neighborhood and saw a tree that I had always wondered about. I thought it might be a pear or a plum tree from looking at its leaves. But this one day it had fruit and I clearly knew that it was neither a plum tree nor a pear tree. The fruit was like nothing I had ever seen. And after a little research, I I discovered that it was a quince tree. I had never seen one of those before. Jesus here declares once again the proof that he is from God and at the same time that the Pharisees are of their father, the devil, by talking about fruit. Let's take a look at the last few verses here. We're going to read verses 33 to 37 of chapter 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." People, the fruit of Jesus' work demonstrates that the tree is good, while the fruit that the Pharisees produce demonstrates that their tree is evil. Jesus calls them vipers. Vipers are sneaky and deadly, and so is the teaching of the Pharisees. Jesus even goes so far as to say that we will be held accountable for every careless word we speak. How do you think you'll do in the assessment when the recording of every word you've ever spoken gets played back before God. I know I would be doomed, to be honest. So where are you at this morning when it comes to Jesus? Do you think he's a lunatic who should be taken away? Do you think he's dangerous, teaching things that are controversial and unacceptable? Or are you wondering whether he could actually be the Messiah that the scriptures promised, the Savior that he claims he is, the one who can heal your life and heart and bridge the gap between you and God that your sin has created? Romans chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 tell us, For there is no distinction, no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are, every one of us, bad trees producing bad fruit, apart from Jesus. What does a farmer with an orchard full of bad trees producing bad fruit do? Well, he cuts down all the trees and he throws them in the fire. That's our destiny, people, and it's horrifying. But Jesus made it clear that he could heal the sick and the mute and the blind and free the demon-possessed. He can take bad trees and heal them so they produce good fruit. Let's look at the next verse in Romans 3. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. People, God wants to take your sin-sick heart, your rotten tree trunk, as it were, and remove the sin, healing the tree so that you can start producing good fruit, fruit for his kingdom and for his glory. 
And all you have to do is admit that your trunk is rotten to the core and ask him for his healing and he will make it happen. The last verse we read said, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What are those words? If your words are words of rejection of this healer king, this savior Messiah, then you will be condemned. But if your words are ones of admission of your guilt and your need of him, then he will justify you. Do it today. And follower of Jesus, are you producing good fruit for the king? If you aren't, he isn't going to throw you in the fire, but he's going to prune you, and it's quite possibly going to be painful. Why not resolve today to join him in that process, to willingly submit to whatever he wants to do in your life that would result in more fruit, better fruit? King David prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's ask God to search out our hearts. Let's be fully transparent with him and submit to whatever he uncovers and wants to change in us. Ask him to reveal any hindrance keeping you from being all that he has intended for his glory. And then ask him for the courage to face it head on. Church, let's be good fruit bearers for our king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in ourselves, in our natural state, we are a mess. The entire trunk of our tree is rotten with sin and we can only produce rotten fruit. But knowing this, Father, you sent your son into this world to demonstrate that he is the Messiah, the one sent by you to redeem and restore us, purchasing our freedom from sin and healing our rottenness so that we could bear good fruit for you. Father, in this auditorium are many who have found that healing in you. Make us good fruit bearers for you. Prune out whatever might hinder us from producing better fruit, even if it hurts. Help us to remember that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let our hearts be full to overflowing with our Savior because we're rooted in him and let him be all we can speak about. Make us fruitful for you as we love our neighbors in your name and proclaim your salvation to a world around us that is lost and dying. And for those gathered here who have not found their life their healing, their hope in you. Prompt them through your Holy Spirit to do so, to turn to you before it's too late. Show them the fruitlessness of their life without you and draw them to yourself. And may they too become fruit bearers for you. In your precious and magnificent name we pray this. Amen.